Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba, and today we are hanging out in Berlin, in spirit at least, because Cynthia is joining us on the show. She is a um, bit of a Berlin underground scene legend, I think it's fair to say. She's a great DJ, really good producer, released a debut album on Aus Music in 2020, and great album it was too. We spoke about that with Will Saul actually on the first episode of the Not A Diving podcast. So um, yeah, great to have her here. We'll be coming up in just a moment. I just want to flag that we had a few audio problems putting this episode together. I've uh, cleaned it up the best I can, and most of it sounds absolutely fine, but there were bits and pieces that you'll notice which go a bit glitchy and get a bit weird. So apologies for that. Um, I'm doing my absolute utmost to get the sound quality on the show across the board as good as possible. But obviously sometimes when you're recording in two places at once, it can be a little bit difficult. So apologies in advance for that. Um, just want to take this opportunity to appeal to all of you for ratings and reviews. Wherever you're listening to this, we are building an audience slowly on the show. We're a brand new podcast of course so um the more ratings and more reviews we get on each individual platform the easy it's going to be to build that audience up going forward so if you haven't done already please jet over and hit that five star button now also there'll be a link in the show notes to this episode to join us in the discord it's a hot flush discord server where there is a not a diving podcast channel so um if you've got anything to say about anything we talk about on here then that's the place to do it and um, I will be back after the conversation to chat, release news and that kind of stuff. I'm not going to clog up the intro with too much of that sort of chat. So, yeah, without further delay, here is Cynthia. Cynthia, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm doing great. 
How are you? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm hanging in there. So I've got a whole big long list of stuff I want to talk about. But um, just to kick off, I wanted to ask you about the market for vinyl at the moment, because you are a record shop owner and presumably you have um, some pretty uh, up-to-date insights into this. So um, yeah, tell me, about, tell me about selling vinyl in 2022. Oh my God. I mean, uh, so yeah, I own a record store in the heart of Berlin. And um, I have to say during the pandemic, um, the vinyl sales have gone up to like, wow, it's like, I think I sold five, six, seven times more than before, which was fantastic, of course, because uh, all my gigs were cancelled. But um, also as a as a record label owner, I have to say it's a bit difficult these days because... Um, I think also the major labels, they rediscovered the vinyl at the moment. So they're kind of blocking all the the spots at the pressing plants uh, with their, um, yeah, with their orders. For example, they press, uh, I read they pressed half a million copies of the new Adele album, which is, of course, for them, like a lot of money, you know. So, of course, when I want to press like 500 copies or 1,000 copies of a record, they're like, okay, you have to wait, which is totally understandable. But, um, yeah, the moment you have to wait for your pressing up to four, five, six months, so it's, I mean, it's kind of terrible to plan stuff, especially as an artist, because you probably know it, you make a track and then when it's released six months after, you feel like, mm, okay, I could have done better because in those six months, your production skills, they get even better. So um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's difficult. It's, uh, I mean, on one side, the vinyl sales go up like crazy. How do you explain that like, big increase in, in sales during the pandemic? So good question. I mean, my theory was that um, once the party stopped, people had so much more money left. Uh, they were like, wow, cool, I have all this money, so let's buy records. And uh, yeah, so that's my theory. I'm not sure if it's true, but um, yeah. Do you know if that's that was something which was like common across the whole kind of like dance ecosystem, whether whether it was a, a Berlin specific thing or that was something which was common across the whole across record shops across Europe? Uh, I think so. I thought I um, I have to say I'm more specialized in mail order, so I ship a lot, and I'm only open right. two two days per week at the moment because um, yeah, I never planned to have a record store, so it just came by accident. And I actually started it with my old crew from um, from my label Best Models, but we went um, different ways. In I think when when did we stop it in 2019? So suddenly I had the whole record store on my own. And to be honest, before the pandemic started, I was even like, oh, maybe I should close it. It's so much work, and I'm touring so much. You know, I have a kid, and I'm producing. So maybe it's you know, I felt like I cannot really take care. Um, of the I mean, that's a, that's a lot, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe I should take care more of the record store because actually I could feel there's something cooking with it. But then, you know, you always have to hunt for new records. You always have to go through the mailing list and stuff. And yeah, to be honest, before the pandemic started, I was even like, okay, maybe I should close it. It's just too much. But then the pandemic started and suddenly I had all this time. And um, yeah, so the more effort I put in, the more comes out. And when I talk to other people, I can also feel that, but only the stores that also have mail order. I think the, the other stores that um, that only have their physical stores, um, I think it's also going well, but then we had to close so many times. I think, um, yeah, they had to struggle a bit, a bit more, definitely. 
So how did it start in the first place then? So um, how long has it been going for? It's called Elevate, right? It's called Elevate, yeah. Um, and it's open now for four years. But the story behind it is um, I had a record label with a bunch of friends from Berlin. It was called Best of Modos. And we started the label in 2011. And it was very, very successful. Um, so we only pressed records and we sold like a couple of thousands, like each each release. We yeah. tried to be super cool, you know, vinyl only, handstand, all that shit. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, then also we had merchandise and uh, we sold it through like our own website. And I had everything stored at home and I was like, oh, this is getting too much. You know, uh, I cannot, I mean, my flat, my flat is big, but then... I put everything into my daughter's room and she was like, mom, if there's more stuff coming in, I swear I'm going to move out. And she was only nine years old. And <laughs> I was like, okay, I have to change something. And then I asked around. So next door, um, my neighbor, she had an office. And next to that office, there was another kind of shop thing, which was always closed. And I asked her uh, if she knows what's going on with that with that other shop. And she was like, yeah, it uh, belongs to an artist. He's still using it. Um, so you can't have it. But give me your phone number. If I hear something, I'll let you know. And then I think five months later, she called me and she was like, look, um, I'm going to um, get smaller with my company. And do you want to have like the back uh, office of this kind of store thing? I was like, wow, this is perfect because it's just right next to my house. And uh, so I started with them, that and I had it for two weeks, just like the back room of this shop kind of thing. And then after two weeks, she was, ah, you know what? My daughter, she just finished school. She's moving out and I'm moving upstairs with my office. Do you want to have the whole shop? And I was like, oh, okay, well. <laughs> so I called my crew and I was like, hey, guys, we're opening a record store. And they're like, Cinti, stop drinking at 9 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so it was a bit of a funny surprise, but... I said, uh, yeah, you never try, you never know. Um, and I was working in a record store also in the mid-90s from 1995 to 2001. Um, so I had right. some experience and I was like, yeah, we can try, you know. And I knew that we were already selling so many records from our own labels. Uh, we said, okay, we want to support also the labels from our friends. Uh, so those kind of labels were the first ones we put in. And then um, I could feel, okay, it's, yeah, people, they really like what we're selling, so we need more stuff. So I got in contact with the, um, yeah, with the normal distributors and stuff like that. And since then, it's only growing. So thank God, yeah. Wow, I mean, so that's great. So it came a bit by a mistake, but now I'm super happy. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes those are the best things. Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> happen by accident. <laughs> okay, so, um, so as you mentioned, you have been doing stuff in music for, for quite a long time now. And um, you're, you're a Berlin native am i correct in saying that yes that's correct but i also lived uh close to frankfurt where i also started um djing and where where i worked in a record store and yeah okay so you so give us a kind of like a, a kind of snapshot of what it was like when you first started out in in frankfurt like um yeah i'm, I'm super interested in this because um i mean i was i, I think started off a sort of similar time in terms of like going out and sort of getting involved in the scene and stuff but uk was very different i think in in some ways to to, to germany so yeah give, give us an impression of what it was like yeah i mean uh, the whole house music and electronic music thing started like very early in the 90s and i was always very interested in music so one of my friends he um 
I think it must have been like 1995. He he was like a bedroom DJ, so uh, yeah, he bought records, played a bit at home, and he said, "Yeah, let's let's go to the record store in a city called Saarbrücken. Um, it's like one hour, one and a half far from Frankfurt, uh, right at the French border." Yep. And I was like, "Okay, cool." So it was my first time in a record store. And I loved it. So from that time, I went there as often as I could. But I was only 15 years old. So obviously, I didn't have so much <laughs> right. pocket money. And uh, yeah, but then luckily... So were you, sorry sorry to interrupt, but were you already like buying records and, and, and DJing at that stage? Yes, yes. So, so my parents, they also always bought records, but it was more like the top 40, um, whatever of the charts and a few, you know, ABBA records and a few whatever was popular <laughs> back then. And yeah, so I was also like buying records and um, yeah, but only a few. And then uh, one of my friends, he sold a small collection of 50 records or something, which I bought and then so I had a, a small starting point. And yeah, so whenever I could, I uh, went to the record store and tried to buy some records. And then luckily the guys liked me a lot and they said, ah, um, don't you want to work for us on the Saturdays? I was like, wow, this would be absolutely amazing. And they, um, they had, so, so they paid me in records, which means I had like between five and 10 records, which was fantastic. Great. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it was quite funny. And, uh, but. So, what, what kind of stuff was being sold there? Like what labels and stuff? Yeah, so we had a lot of house music, of course, um, then also a lot of techno, and then also a lot of trance music, like, you know. Well, Charles, Charles was good back then. Yeah, 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 it was oh, really good, like all this Frankfurt <laughs> stuff, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, like Hot House and all yeah, that. Yeah, Hot stuff, House right? and stuff. Oh my God, we had so much of that stuff, and yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, so um, we sold all of that, and yeah, it was quite funny because I was the only girl there, you know, and the other guys there were super. From my point of view, super old techno guys. I mean, they were in there like 27, 28. But for me, 15, 16 years old girl, I was like, wow, yeah, they're yeah, so yeah. old. <laughs> yeah. So so how did it then sort of develop from working in a shop and um, being involved? How did that, that go towards sort of DJing and, and getting more involved? Yeah, um, so uh, back then I also started to go out and because I was really, really tall, and almost the tallest in my uh, kind of group. And everyone was much older than me. So whenever we wanted to go clubbing, uh, they never checked my passport. So because I think I didn't even have one because you only get it when you're 16. And um, I think two years ago, I was turning 40. And I, and I have this box where I have where I collect some, um, some souvenirs from like back in the days. And I thought, yeah, I must have gone out when I was 16. And then I found some flyers and also some entrance cards. And I think back in the days, um, especially in, a, in an area around Mannheim, uh, it was really, really big for drum and bass. And they had the very first uh, jungle fever there. And I was at this oh, really? party. Wow. Yeah, and the party was 1995. Okay, I was only yeah, 15 right. when I was out. <laughs> Oh my God. Imagine it now. My daughter is 12, you know, when she comes in like two years, she wants to go to a drum and bass party. I'm not sure if I find this very cool. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, so I started to go out and then <clears throat> collected records and, um, the guys from the store asked me, um, are you DJing? And of course, me, I was like, wanted to be super cool. I'm like, yeah, sure, I can. I'm super cool, you know. And then, okay, mixed two records was total train wrecks, of course. And yeah, from that uh, moment, I said, okay, um, whenever you work here, the first hour or two hours when there's not so much going on, you just mix um, records. I was like, okay, cool. So, And I hated it because they gave me all kinds of stuff and 
some stuff was really not quantized, you know, quantized. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. And it was really hard for me. And also, um, yeah, I kind of hated it. And I thought, yeah, they're just making jokes about me. But then at the end, I understood they just wanted to be nice and they wanted me to to learn my craft and get the skills and stuff. And whenever a transition was was done very well, they said, okay, now without the headphones. I'm like, oh. That is a good education. Yeah, it's really, really, really good. good. So they really wanted me to get that rhythm and understand how it works and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a very good learning school. And then I think 1997, when I turned 17, they said, oh, you have a gig. And I was like, oh, okay, so I have a gig. Where is it? And I think it was... Um, uh, it was a party for um, for Carnival, German Carnival. It must have been in February, something like this. And right. I played uh, the opening and the party started at 6 p.m. So I was supposed to play two hours, but then the DJ after me called in six. So I played four hours at my first gig. I was sweating so much. <laughs> and it was completely new, you know, new sound system. You have like uh, a little bit of a delay, you know, from the monitors and stuff. And... But I think I did quite well. And then after, it was really funny, um, after was Mark Spoon playing, you know, this old school yep. Frankfurt guy who was like, yeah, you know, and everyone was always <laughs> really scared of him because he was so big and so tall and everything. And then he came up to me and was like, that wasn't, that wasn't so bad. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, wow. yeah. Also the club must have liked it because they asked me to be a resident there. And then... Um, they had different floors and I was hosting um, like one of the side floors like all night long from like so what, what venue was that? Um, it was a small venue also in Saarbrücken it was um, called Culture Fabric yeah so they okay. had like three different floors oh. and yeah they gave me one floor and yeah and what was the shop called that you were working at? Uh, the shop was called Humpty Records Okay, and they were so they were also involved with that club presumably they uh, were... no they weren't involved with that club but um you know, back in the days, the scene wasn't so big, so and um, so they all knew each other, and then, yeah. And there, there weren't so many girls. I think I was pretty much the only girl there for a long, long time uh, in this area. And, uh, yeah, and back then, they always wanted to have a girl because uh, I was so much better in, like, selling records. I was nicer to the customers. <laughs> and Okay. So um, this is around Frankfurt, and you've just mentioned that um, there was a big drum and bass thing going on there, but what, what else was going on in the scene, like, around 95, 97 sort of time? Yeah. Oh, my God. I had so many parties. Um, um, there was also, I think, the first Time Warp started there. Uh, right, like yeah. Very, very small with, I think, Carl Cox, Sven Fade, of course, Richie Horton. Um, pff, yeah, all that kind of stuff with one floor. And, yeah, it was just crazy because from where I lived, it was really close to go to um, to Paris. It was like a two, three hours uh, car ride. Um, so we were raver tourists, you know, we went everywhere. We went to Stuttgart, we went to Mannheim also, we went to Berlin because um, uh, it was uh, it was just crazy everywhere in Germany. And um, yeah, so then, yeah, I continued DJing and stuff and um, was also playing for a guy called Westbam. He had this label called Low Spirits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You okay. probably know yeah. that was... Yeah. Kind of commercial, but I like the the breaky stuff they release. And then, um, so sometimes we had guest DJs in the club I was playing, and um, they asked me to play before him. 
And he really, really liked it and was like, oh, my God, I'm going to book you for Berlin. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And, um, yeah, then they really called me, like, the week after. And I was like, yeah, you have to play here. And I think it was a New Year's Eve rave, like, really, really big. It was with Westbam and Woody. I'm not sure if you know Woody. He now does the booking for Heideklün in Berlin. In Berlin. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so he's also, like, like long time in the scene and everything. And... Yeah, it was crazy. And then, um, yeah, I finished school and then went back to Berlin. And since then, I'm living here and doing my thing. Okay, so you were born in Berlin and then, okay, and then came back. So so what year did you come back then? Uh, 2000 or something? I think must be 1919. <laughs> okay. And so, so what was Berlin like then? Because obviously that's, what, 10 years after the wall came down or thereabouts. And I mean, I've my my, my experience of Berlin is... I came to live there for the first time in 2007, but I'd been a couple of times before that. And it was still very much a, um, it, there was still the hangover from that whole period was was still evident. And it must have been even more so uh, at the end of the 90s. So what was what was it like um, in terms of the music scene there? Because obviously there's, you know, historically, you know, going back a long time, there's there's been a great kind of counterculture in the city. So what so what was it like coming back? How well how how different was it? I mean obviously you've been playing, but how different was it to like cities in the West? Um yeah, I mean it, it was it was crazy, but in a good way because um you know um Berlin has like this long history also from the war and stuff. And also there are no closing hours, closing times. <clears throat> so the clubs could literally continue from Friday till Monday or Tuesday or whatever. And um, yeah, it was crazy. It was like a big playground. Also, you had so many abandoned uh, buildings. That's what blew my mind when I first arrived in 2007. How many, how many squatted buildings there still were? I mean, there, there aren't really any. I mean, well, I don't know. Are there, are there any anymore? I mean, there's probably a few, but nothing like the, what there was. I don't think so. I mean, even the ones that were like half illegal, let's say, for example, like Sisyphus back in the days, they made it legal now, of course. Uh, yeah, I think that times are pretty much over. Yeah, for the you know, um, squatted houses and stuff like that. And I remember I was also throwing parties from 2005 to 2009, something like this. Uh, yeah, we also just squatted houses and put a sound system in. And uh, whenever the police came, we switched everything off and just being very yeah. quiet so they couldn't hear <laughs> us. And all the police came at 8 o'clock in the morning, took the mixer, and I had to get it back then the next day and pay 50 euros <laughs> but they were all like super relaxed and yes it was quite fun and music wise um i mean berlin especially tresor always had a big bond with detroit um with detroit techno so all the guys from detroit and chicago came over to play um also uh yeah so it was it was just a lot of like history going on there um also yeah besides the techno stuff and the house stuff um there was also like another kind of scene growing which i would call more like the sissy force kind of bar 25 kind of hedonistic yeah the kind of after hours type the, the scene, after right? after 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 hour scene yeah exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When you said there was a new scene developing, I assumed you were going to say minimal there, but like, was the minimal thing like inextricably linked to that after hours thing, or was it something different? Uh, I think the minimal stuff came a bit later. Um, I right. think before there was a bit more like the, I would call it like pop house music, a lot of with, um, you know, people were singing in tracks, um, a lot of, 
Um, oh, really? That was the early uh, Bar 25 stuff, really? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah like that. this. Um, let me think about some kind of um, artist. I think there was uh, the, the Martini Brothers, uh, which were released on Ellen Alien's label called um, Beepage Control. Yeah. So it was kind of very poppy and... Um, I think that was a scene that developed from there. And then also, of course, like the minimal scene with uh, Richie Horton and all those people. And I think it also mostly came then from um, Bar 25. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that that's another name that really sticks in my mind from having turned up like, you know, at the, at the tail end of all that stuff, I guess, in 2007, because it was mostly sort of petering out by then in, well, in terms of like the, the, the minimal sound was anyway. I mean, Bar 25 was still a still a big thing yeah yeah um, it is absolutely yeah yeah it was a kind of i don't know it had this kind of semi-mythical like <laughs> presence in my mind i was never quite sure what to make of it you know like, i cannot remember but, anything from there <laughs> no it wasn't yeah, too bad, yeah it had, but, it had, it had yeah. that kind of um yeah it had that image in my in my head of this kind of like <laughs> um this weird kind of like sort of, sort of semi uh surreal kind of yeah <laughs> place but okay. I have to say I wasn't there too many times. I mean, I liked it and stuff, but then also I think it must have been about the around 2007. Or was it later? I don't know. No, it must have been 2007, 2008 when, you know, Panorama Bar opened. Yeah, I think it opened... 2005, 2006. I know, because it was definitely already a big thing when I arrived yeah. in the middle of 2007. So that was immediately a big thing then in the city. Uh, yes. I mean, they had the history with Osgood, um, with the former club. And then yeah. uh, Osgood closed and they opened, uh, they had this huge building um, where now Burkhan and Panorama Bar is in. But I think for the first year, um, because they just were renovating the building, for the first year there was only Panorama Bar open. And then one year later they opened the Burkhan. And we were all like, first I have to say, we were all laughing about the name. It's like, oh my God, what kind of name is that? And it's actually a combination um, between the districts because it's in between Kreuzberg and Friedrichshain. So it's um, Berg from Kreuzberg and Hein from Friedrichshain. And yep. um, yeah, but we were like, oh, what, is, what kind of name is that? You know, it's really funny. And <laughs> now it's super famous. And uh, yeah, so I was more like a Panorama Bar girl, I would say. So we went to Panorama Bar almost every Saturday um, or every weekend. And then I think they closed at 10 o'clock in the morning. I think it was kind of the longest. And then everyone was, of course, going to Bar 25. Um, yeah, so I went there as well for a couple of hours. But um, yeah, I was not one yeah, of that, the, the after 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 our people <laughs> yeah that was um that was it wasn't it because it was uh the, the kind of late closing of Burkheim Panorama Bar is something which gradually developed over time didn't it it was it just got gradually and later and later and later yes absolutely I think first it was like Sunday afternoon and that was already kind of crazy and then uh, they realized okay on Sunday there were so many like fresh people coming in so they said okay let's book another DJ and then uh, back then it was always a big thing because you never knew who was playing the last slot. It was always a surprise. And even though you were at home, you didn't want to go out the whole weekend. And then suddenly there was like, boom, this and that kind of DJ playing so surprisingly at the end. And you're like, oh, damn it, now I have to go. <laughs> and then you went until Monday and then straight to work, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. So how was your DJing 
developing in this period then in the after you moved back to Berlin like how, how did things kind of progress for you as a as a DJ yeah um so around 2000 I also started producing um um and I had my first releases on the label from Westbam on this um yeah low spirit and he had the sub label called Electric Kingdom where he released more the, the broken beats electro breakbeat stuff um yeah so I toured with them a lot um on their Electric Kingdom tours but I have to say the label was back then well now but for the cool kids on the block they said yeah it's kind of commercial because also they made the love parade they made the mayday in dortmund and all this kind of super big stuff and i think i left the label in 2003 um and then first i have to say it was kind of hard to get my feedback on the ground because a lot of people thought oh she was uh, connected with the label so she must play super commercial stuff which i wasn't And um, yeah, so it took me a while to <clears throat> to make myself a name in the scene again. So uh, yeah, it took a while to 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 get. Um, I don't want to say to get respected, but I I know what you mean yeah. because the, the the Berlin scene particularly. I mean, this is true of all underground scenes, yeah. but Berlin scene particularly can be very um well, it can be quite bitchy. I find yeah. it can yeah. be quite like snobbish yeah. in in a way which is um can be yeah it can be quite difficult to kind of navigate your way through it if you if people um get a kind of perception of you as doing something it can be quite difficult to break those perceptions yeah absolutely and back then it was even a bit harder i think um in the uk was much different much more different because you even had dance music in the charts and it's um it was very nice to be successful i think in germany and I'm not sure if it's like a German thing. We are more like, oh, if you're successful, you don't show it because that makes you uncool. And so it was also in the scene, yeah. you know, so you were like playing good gigs. But then if you were becoming too big, then people were calling you out as commercial or uh, not credible enough or not cool anymore or not underground enough. And yeah, so yeah. And for me, I came from this big label, you know, played a lot of gigs, like also internationally nationally and stuff. I mean, I wasn't very big, but... Um, People from that label knew me and also people from Berlin, from Berlin knew me. And it took me a while to get yeah back into the underground scene. But uh, once I was in, you know, I um, I was like always respected, you know. And So how did you go about doing that? I mean, was that a case, a case of, of, of just like what you play as a DJ or did you have some key releases which, which made a kind of breakthrough in that respect? Like how did, how did it pan out? No. So when I stopped with that, with that label, I didn't release any music until, 2008 then I had a few releases and then I had my daughter and I really restarted in 2011 when I, when I had my own label so it was just from like DJing and also about you know meeting people going out socializing with people and um, I think I got most gigs through my personality as well You know, so the people heard that I play good music, but then also when they met me, they're like, oh, you're super nice. I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, and then, oh, you, you want to pl play at my party? So like, yeah, sure, cool. And then I played at the party and then uh, I think it was, it was more like this, um, how do you call it in English, word to mouth? Is that a thing? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, maybe that's just a German expression, and I'm trying to <laughs> translate it. No, it was more like uh, so people heard me playing, and then I oh, word of mouth. 
Yeah, yeah, whatever. Word of my, yeah, yeah. And that, Sorry, yeah, that's yeah. I should have clocked that. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I'm sometimes also mumbling. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got. My... It's, it's establishing a reputation, right? Yeah, so it's exactly. Like that's going, what I wanted to say. And, and <laughs> kind of like, I mean, networking is the kind of slightly un- uncomfortable way of saying it, but like that's that's the reality of what it is. You go, you go out and you meet people and you put yourself out there, yeah. and that's how you establish yourself in a scene. You know, I speak to so many like young up and coming artists now, and like just trying to impress that just basic thing in them can be so important just just realizing you've just got to go out there and and sort of present yourself you know and that's really a lot of the times what makes the difference yeah absolutely and i was also recording a lot of mixes put them up on soundcloud and people liked it and i think those two combinations um that helped me get some gigs in berlin okay and you mentioned that you started producing back in 2000 so so how did that like develop i mean you, you didn't release anything in for, for like what a five-year period basically but were you still making music then like how how kind of important was that and is that to the whole to the whole thing of, of what you do in music yeah uh, i mean back then it was just a natural uh, evolution from when you started djing you know at some point you wanted to play a spe- specific kind of sound or a specific record which wasn't there so you thought okay maybe i can produce it myself um so i got an atari and uh, i think it was cubase 2.0 in black and white. <laughs> yeah, nice. nice <laughs> and yeah. I had one synth. I think it was a Yamaha AN, AN4X, AN2. It's wherever. I just, you know, I was stupid. I just bought a yeah, couple yeah. of things, you know, and um, there was no YouTube, nothing. And uh, yeah, so I, <laughs> so I tried myself, which sounded absolutely terrible. But then uh, luckily I had a lot of producer friends around me. I could always ask for help. And um, yeah, so for my first productions, I had a couple of sketches and one of my friends he was a really really big producer back then yeah i mean he produced more for other people but he had a big studio so he helped me um like uh yeah like improving my uh my sketches and i learned a lot from that but then when i left the label i think i was a bit um i don't want to say i had a writer's block but i didn't know where to go sound-wise and stuff like that. Um, mm. Yeah, so I took a break. Also, I was finishing my my studies. I was at a university as well. Um, so I wanted to concentrate more on that. And I think I restarted it a bit in 2008. Um, then I had finally Logic on, uh, on a MacBook um, in colors, which was really nice compared to, uh, to the Cubase uh, black and white. Yeah, I did some stuff and uh, I don't know, but I released some stuff, but wasn't very happy. And also um, in 2009, my daughter was born. And to be honest, after my daughter was born, I was like, yeah, okay. So uh, there are two options. So there's either something cool happening with my career or I just let it die. So, and then luckily at a party where I played, I, I met um, a bunch of guys um, and then we formed the, the label Beste Modus and suddenly had my own label. Okay, I want to want to get onto labels in a sec. Let's yeah. just um just stay on producing for a minute because you've got a pretty decent looking studio, I have to say. Like <laughs> um, it's it makes some um, like frequent appearance on your your Instagram. Um, yeah, so what's when did you start building that up? Because you've got some you've got a lot of kit in there by the looks of things. <laughs> yeah, the studio is a, is a bit too much <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so the the history behind that is that I used to work for Ableton for a couple of years. So I know the software in and out. 
and then um, yeah, made music. And then I went to a couple of other friends' studios, for example, to the cab drivers. And uh, they had all, all kinds of gear there, you know, the 909, the 303, the SH-101 and all that stuff. And I was like, ah, this is so much nicer. You know, you can like <laughs> twiddle the knobs and it's, it's <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. And you can also stand up and actually make dance music rather than just sitting on a chair and moving the mouse. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. And then also went to Paris to um, <clears throat> a friend of mine's uh, studio. He is, um, his name is Leopold. And uh, yeah, he also got the 909 and 808 and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was, was really cool. I was like, ah, maybe I should get a bit of like gear, you know, just the basics. Like three bits. <laughs> that's all. That's three the bits. Yeah, this is how thing, it started. Right? Yeah, three bits. <laughs> I was like, okay, then I'm done. So I was looking on, um, on this eBay secondhand uh, platform. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure there's nothing on there, you know. And then I was like, fuck, there's a, there's a 909 shit. Okay, now I have to buy it. So I think, oh, or did I buy the 808 first? I don't know. So whatever. Uh, I found a bun bunch of gear like the 808, 909, the 707, the SH-101. And I was like, okay, this is just the basics. Then I think I got a D50 and a Juno as well. And then nice. I, I posted it and one of my friends saw it and he was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. You know what? I made music in the 90s, but my stuff is just collecting dust in the cellar. And I was like, okay, I mean, just bring it over. I, I'm going to have a look. So he brought it over. So he had another Juno and he had this um, Orbit Dance Planet, which was a very well, oh, yeah, well known that, yeah. Yeah, uh, preset machine from the 90s and um, like a Novation base station, you know, all that famous stuff from the 90s, like six, seven pieces. And he was like, yeah, just take it. I don't need it anymore. And I was like, yes, cool. <laughs> Great. So okay. I put it in there and then um, one of my other friends saw it and it's a very, very good friend. His name is Holger and he does um, all the content for electronic beats. And he's also from the area around Frankfurt. I think, yeah, it's, it's more like uh, called Mainz. And he was also working in a record store in the 90s. He had a couple of very, very famous labels back then. And he also built studios for his whole life. I think he started building studios when he was like 17 or something like this and um and he was like oh cool i saw your studio blah 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 and then i also just renovated my studio so i got this room and room concept and he was like yeah can i have a look i was like yeah yeah sure and then he came around and was like oh this is so cool blah blah, blah. and told me about all the secrets how i can uh, trigger the juno with the 808 and i was like uh-huh cool super <laughs> nice and I was just about to wire everything. And he was, ah, just give me two cables. I'm just doing it for you. I was like, okay, cool. And I felt a bit like my dad, you know, when my dad came around the house and he was like, oh, you have a new washing machine. I just, I just plug it in and stuff. And I was like, yeah, okay, thanks, dad. So he was the same because he's also so addicted to music and machines and stuff. And I think he was also very impressed that I made the switch from, um, from just Ableton to to a few machines. And um, yeah, so he helped me like wiring the whole thing. And by the end of the day, Actually, he just wanted to come around for a coffee. And then by the end of the day, the whole thing was wired and worked and everything. And um, yeah, then also he gave me a few bits. And also he's also very active on the secondhand market. Um, and whenever he saw something, was oh, this would be cool for the studio. Uh, I just going to buy it, pick it up and you can give me the money later. So that's how everything came together. And I mean, I have to say, of course, it's not all my gear. So most I got from two friends, I got a bit of stuff lent, but I have like the, the basics, like the, the Roland stuff and yeah. a few other things. But yeah, it's really cool. And um, 
I also had to move studio once. Um, so where I'm now in, I, have, I think I have it for three years now, almost four years. And before I had that studio, I was also sharing it with some other guys, but they had more like the new, uh, the new school stuff. Um, yeah. But now I have it all on my own, um, yeah, which I prefer. So it's uh, because then I can go to the studio and everything is still wired and stuff like that. And yeah, big thanks to yeah. my friend Holger because uh, we also have a patch bay now. So I can just go into the studio. Everything's working. I have the latest drivers and stuff like that. And yeah, it's just a, a very, very nice uh, working place. And it's really funny because when I started making music on my small Atari, I was always like, oh, maybe one day I'm good enough to have a studio like this. But, I, <laughs> but I'm not a, a classically trained person. So I was like, oh, I think I will never be like good enough. And, and then like with the record store, you know, everything just came together by accident. And I think it's, it's really, really nice. And even though I can make the same kind of music just with my laptop, I think this is in the studio, it's making so much fun, even when I'm there, just not recording anything, but just, you know, working with the machines. Yeah, just or working, messing around. Yeah, 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 just messing around, you know, and I think this is the most important thing for me um, for making music. It's If it's not making fun for me anymore, I think then I will quit. But, you know, with the studio, it's loads of fun. So you're just using the hardware for, for tunes you make these days? Yes, mostly, yeah. How do you, do you have a, a, a mixing desk? How yes, do you, I do. do I have, yeah. yeah, I have the old Onyx uh, from Mackie. Oh, I used to have one of those. Okay, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, how was the... Um, so, okay, so was there a kind of transition period between working with software to um, to just going to hardware? Because it's, it's, it's a different kind of mentality, I find, yeah. using hardware. And it's going to be... It's a different... It's a different way of thinking about it a little bit. So yeah, how how was how was that? Yeah, um, yeah, it was a bit of a learning process because um, before that I was just you know moving the mouse around, clicking a few notes in, and uh, then I got my first drum machine, and of course I had to find out first how it works, and then especially with the with the old school machines, you know, sometimes they just don't play anything because they are not in the mood to play anything. And um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, then you have to switch them, the old tricks, switch them off, switch them on, then it's working again. So yeah, it took a while to like study them and then also <clears throat> to get a kind of groove. And then also, I think a lot of people always think, yeah, the 909 is like the is such a monster of a drum machine, which is not true because if you don't process it, it sounds like a wet fart. So I, I <laughs> needed to learn all that stuff to make it funky, to, to make it punchy and stuff like that but uh, yeah again I'm super lucky because I have all these friends around and whenever I had questions I could always ask and like oh do this try that and then I'm like oh yeah cool thanks for the tip or I mean also these days YouTube is full of tutorials so whenever you get stuck um, you can always quickly watch a tutorial and they're like oh yeah okay cool this is how it works and yeah took some time and I think uh, with my production you can always hear some kind of improvement um, so I had, I think my first tracks, which I released only with the machines, um, I had on a sub label from, uh, one guy from the cab drivers, um, from, from Jens, from the cab drivers. Um, yep. I think it's called ground service. And so yep. I used machines for the first time. And now when I listen back to it, I was like, oh, shit, I could have done it much better now, but, uh, yeah, but I think it's okay. For me, it's important that people see an evolution, even though the tracks I produced maybe eight years ago uh, sound kind of not funny, but you can definitely hear they could have done better, they could have been mixed better or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but I think it's 
it's okay because it's my journey. You know, it's how I started, restarted again. And now yeah, of course. I, I think with every track you can hear an improvement. I'm always learning more. And um, now then, of course, with Corona, I had even more time to be in the studio. And uh, yeah, I think it's, think it's nice to see an evolution or like a, um, an improvement in uh, production skills, producing skills, production skills. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like you never really stop learning in the studio. I mean, that's that's what I find. I mean, and and having having machines is a is a whole other aspect to it too. You know, um, I've been through that kind of uh, I guess like learning curve as well. But, but I mean, it's it's something that never stops. Cool. So let's just go back a little bit to labels. I mean, you you, you mentioned just earlier. Um, that you became involved with a bunch of people and you started the Best of Modus thing, which was which was a which was a vinyl only label, and there were various sub labels as well to it, weren't there? I believe. So, can you talk us through that a little bit? Mm, yeah. So, as as I said before, I was playing at a party in Berlin, and um, I think I played quite late, and the party was already yeah a bit empty, and yeah, but then I met those guys. I think. There four or five of them. Um, they were already in a group and they made um, just a transition from producing hip hop and beats to making house music. And when I played, right. they, they always came up to me like, oh, what's this record? I really like it. Cool. So uh, after we had a drink at the bar, and we um, started talking about things. And then I put them on several guest lists, guest lists whenever I was playing in Berlin. So we became friends. And then, um, yeah, they started to send me some tracks and I played them. And I was like, wow, this stuff is like really, really good. And <clears throat> it was just the comeback of house music, this, this 90s uh, stuff, which became really big then yep. in the beginning of the... Uh, 2010s and <clears throat> it was totally up my street uh, as you would say um, and I was like wow shit I, re I really have to do something with them before someone else comes and steals them from me um, <laughs> so we met and I was like cool I have an idea uh, we do a label like, what oh this is so cool oh my god what shall we do and I was like ah you don't have to do anything um, because I have lots of experience with that uh let me do it i just need the tracks okay cool so we um started it just to try also uh we were super lucky to get uh, a chance with our favorite distributor um with diamonds and pearls from berlin uh because also they had italo oh, yeah, johnson okay. and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we really loved their stuff and i think our stuff was like kind of similar so we said oh, i would be so good to be with the same distributor And um, yeah, one of my friends was working there and I didn't know it. And so I wrote them a, an email and then my friend was like, yeah, we're actually full, but just come around. And I was like, I mean, how stupid is that when you're full to come around and waste my time? And then he, <laughs> he opened the door and was like, yeah, of course, we're going to take you over. So the stuff is really good. And yeah, so we sold, I think we just pressed 300 copies, hand stamped, you know, all the cool stuff um, we did back then. And um Yeah, it was sold like overnight from the distributor and we were like, wow, we sold 300 copies. We were like, wow, we're the kings of the world, you know, and we're killing it. <laughs> <laughs> and not knowing that 300 copies is nothing. Um, then the second pressing uh, was also 300 copies, sold overnight again. Um, then the third pressing, my pressing company um, said, okay, look, uh, you're selling it so fast. Maybe you should try 500 And then I was like, yeah, this could be nice. And then they said, yeah, but the jump from 500 to 800 is not so much more expensive. Maybe you should try 800. And then I was like, okay, cool, let's try 800. And then it was also gone in like a week and then we repressed and 
yeah, so it was we were to- totally overwhelmed with the um, success, and also you have to remember that we still hand stamped all the stuff, and then. I think I started. <laughs> yeah, suddenly it becomes a big job, right? <laughs> yeah, and then suddenly, suddenly no one had time anymore. You know, it was always me. Whenever I was like, "Yeah, there's the records are coming. Who can help stamping the records?" Suddenly <laughs> it was always their grandmother's birthday. Then <laughs> it was the guinea pig was sick and whatsoever. And uh, yeah, so I ended up stamping like a thousand copies sometimes, and wow, that was horrible. <laughs> so you know what you did during the day uh, in the evening because my hand was like hurting so much. But anyway. Um, all jokes aside um, yeah it was really really good and label was growing and I think after the third release um, some of our close friends they started to send us um, tracks as well but then we said Best of Modus is just for us as the core crew but what about um, starting another sub-label and uh, so we called it Best of Freunde which means Best Mates and yeah there we released a bunch of our friends um on the label and then I did another label label with one of my friends from the crew uh, with Diego Krause because he's like a producer machine so he was so productive and so busy so we started his label Unison Wax together where he only released his own music which was also very successful and um, yeah I think that's pretty much it Um, yeah I also started later uh, another label called We Are House with some friends from the UK just to be a bit yep. more independent from my from my first crew. Yeah, so everything was very, very successful, I have to say. Um, but we closed everything down in 2019. And um, yeah, then I started my Crystal Grooves imprint for myself. Yeah. So that was, it was mostly vinyl only. Was it, was it all vinyl only? Some of it's available. Okay, go on. Yeah, it was, it was only, uh, sorry, everything was um, vinyl only. And then... And the more I was growing, then I had some chats with uh, friends and also with um, yeah, also with longtime friends. You know, they had labels in Frankfurt. They were working for distributors and stuff, so they had much much more experience than me. And I mean, until now, I'm only playing records. I mean, I play new stuff, obviously from the USB key, or if it's absolutely not possible, I play USB. But for me, playing vinyl is it's just more fun for me. I don't know. And um, But then my friends from these other labels said, look, I mean, I know you're selling a lot of records, but what about the people in, for example, South America? They want to listen to your music, but they can't because for them it's too expensive to import records or they don't have any record stores. I was, yeah, you're right. And then they said, yeah, maybe try um, try to go digital as well. And I was like, yeah, cool. So I'm just about to start my own imprint, Crystal Grooves, which is just from, for myself. So I can also make my own decisions. While with Best of Modus, we were a crew and we always made the decisions together. And we said, okay, for that, we don't really want that to be to become digital. And then, yeah, so why, why, sorry, sorry if I can interrupt, but what was the main motivating factor in keeping it final only? We were just too cool to go digital, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, it's, it's the same thing, you know, it's like, yeah, we were super cool, super underground. And where does that come from, though? Where, where do you think that? I mean, because it's, it's kind of an interesting thing for me because, I mean, obviously I, I'm well aware of, of what it means and, <laughs> and how it kind of manifests itself throughout the scene, you know, yeah. and I come from a, you know, a sort of um, a dub plate culture background yeah, originally, so, I, so, yeah. so I'm, I'm well aware of it. But like, I mean, how do you sort of rationalise that? Like, what does it really mean? I don't know. I don't want to call it vinyl Nazis, but I think this is a very good <laughs> explanation for it. Um, I don't know. I think it's just... 
it's really hard to explain. I think it's how we started it and that we were super cool underground. We always arrived with our records, you know, the guys could play for ages. And uh, I think it was still that also kind of Berlin mentality that don't become too big, you know, don't be too successful and... Yeah, that's a real thing in Berlin, isn't it? It's a real kind of suspicion of of success, basically. But but equally, or rather, I, well, I think success is just sort of judged in slightly different terms. Is probably a better way of putting it because obviously, like there are, there's definitely kind of a hierarchy within the kind of Berlin DJ scene, and and obviously, like there's a sort of expression of success in that. But it's very much a like you've got to do it in a very specific kind of a way. Yeah, yeah, true. I think I think back then there was even much more like that you know because uh, a lot of other DJs they just had their big breakthrough when, when they played in big festivals and stuff like that and like a lot of people were like ah oh, they are no commercial you know and uh, we kept it underground and I mean and even myself I was like I only play vinyl you know why do we need a digital version of it I don't play digital stuff so I was a bit like kind of arrogant and innocent in a way and I think just when I opened up a bit more because also my DJ stuff picked up with more releases and stuff. And I was like, ah, oh, it's actually cool. So I had the feeling whenever I released a cool record, a lot of, a lot more people were following me and liked my music. And, um, and yeah. I, yeah, kind of liked that. Of course. I mean, it's uh, for every artist when you produce something or create something, you also need people that like it, you know, because uh, it's some kind of um, appreciation or it's it's a good feeling when other people also like the stuff you, you create. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. Yeah, you know, it's so like, if everyone's I mean, it's... running away, then you get depressed. It's like the other side of it. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so I was like, okay, I just tried. And um, so Presto won first. Then I went, uh, offered my stuff on, um, what's it called, Beatport, Source, and also I think Spotify started out ba back then. So I had my stuff mm. everywhere. And I was like, oh, cool. There's also some coins coming in from that without me doing something yeah. you know and um and <coughs> did you did you find that it affected the vinyl side of it at all no not at all because i think it was also this big uh rumor that oh when you go digital um no one will buy your records anymore and but i think that uh there will always be this group of like people that only play records and because they like it it's their hobby And um, it's just a different kind of touch and feel. And uh, yeah, there will always, like people who like records, they will always buy records. And then of course... Sorry, let, let me ask you a question about that just quickly. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you. But um, I mean, this goes back to what you were saying about, um, about the shop as well. Like what proportion of people do you think who buy records now actually use them for DJing? I have to say it's really hard to say because I have mostly, I would say 95% I have hobby DJs. And yeah. so-called bedroom DJs. I mean, they're not professionally playing. Uh, they just play at home or sometimes I see them tagging me in their, uh, when they play in bars or when they play with their mates somewhere. Um, right, sure. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but then... So it's still, so it's still, a, it's still a significant factor, so you're saying. Yeah, yeah, say. yeah, yeah. But, then, right. I, but okay. then on the other side, I mean, they're not so... I don't have so many professional DJs 
buying at my store. I mean, Seth Troxler was over the other day. He bought pretty much everything. So um, I have nothing <laughs> <Right>. left. <laughs> and uh, no, I mean, there's still a few people. Cassie was there. Then Toby Neumann's coming. Um, uh, yeah, that's, but it's not like the main people buying stuff. And also, I think when you when you see people playing, like most of them play, play digital nowadays. Um, yeah. Yeah, but for me, I think that's also why the shop is going so well, because I'm playing records and I believe that if I love my own product, then people will love it too. And that's why people buy records in my shop, because they see me play and like, oh, she plays records. That's really cool. So I want to have this record and then they check out my store. And then, yeah, it's like a really good combination. Yeah, it's a great way of marketing the yeah. whole thing, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. a kind of yeah, self-reinforcing uh, force, definitely there. I mean, that's that's interesting that 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 you say that it's it's still significant because I mean, I think um, well, I, I think the the kind of collectors element of of vinyl sales has become more significant. But I, but I guess the kind of people who collect vinyl also, you know, have a, probably have a pair of decks at home and spin them and occasionally play gigs. And you know, if they're not doing it professionally, it's still it's still a big part of it, I imagine, I guess. Yes, and I think for a lot of people, it's also some kind of, um, I don't want to say therapy, but it's the same when you are in the studio, you can really get lost in it and you can totally switch off the reality. Uh, so when you mix records... Um, yeah, you can t- get totally lost in music and whatever you are stressed with your job and you switch on your turntables and you play for an hour or two. I think you, espe- I mean, especially for me, I feel much better after. I feel more relaxed and um, more calm. And um, yeah, for me, the, the most important thing or the most fun thing is that making a very good transition with two records, it's will I fuck it up tonight or will I not fuck it up tonight? <laughs> I mean, most of the time, luckily, I'm not fucking it up anymore. <laughs> but uh, like when I just started, but uh, of course. It's, oh, when do you, when you get a good one? It's, it's a great feeling, right? That yeah. never goes away. Oh my God. And then when you when you mix two records together and one bass line stops and the other one suddenly starts, <laughs> you know, and it's like such a good transition and you stand there and you're like, oh my God, I'm a fucking genius. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next one, you fuck it up and you're like, I can't do anything. I'm a loser. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think there's a there's a difference as well when you, when you're playing vinyl compared to on the CDJs. It's, a, it's much more of a well, it's obviously much more of a kind of tactile thing. You know, actually, you know, pushing and and you know, moving the, the pitch control in a way which you don't really have to uh, on the CDJs, and it just gives it a bit more of a. It feels like a bit more like real life you know yeah and it's i think it's a bit more of a craft to be honest uh i mean no oh, it's off- much more difficult that's for sure yeah, yeah yeah and i mean no offense to like everyone who plays digital um but um yeah it's a bit uh yeah you really have to use your own brain or your own ear to hear okay is this faster now or is it the same speed or um and you're actually kind of working, so to say. And also, you can't you can't just loop a record at the end of the um, at the end. You you really have to mix in, you know, because when the record's over, then there's nothing left. It's <laughs> over. Right? It's yeah, over. Yeah, exactly. yeah, there's not much you can do um, <laughs> apart from your Ricardo Villalobos and you just started playing from the beginning. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to talk about one of the things that, I, that has been coming up over again on these podcasts that I've been doing has been, well, the album format 
and how it kind of fits into electronic music and how different people like approach it as from a production perspective and from a kind of artistic creative perspective so you had your first album out on on house music uh with will we had will on the first uh, episode of the podcast um, which came out in 2020 i believe called skyline city lights um great record it was and um i wanted to yeah i just wanted to ask you about how you feel about about albums generally like i mean how 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 does the how what does the format kind of mean to you mm, so f- from an artist point of view it's always a milestone in your career i would say um especially the first one mm. and when i was younger i was i always wanted to make an album because it's such a statement and also for the album uh you can also show a bit more of your craft than just making let's say dance floor uh bombs or dance floor tracks um i mean the the album is mostly i would say still dance tracks because this is what i'm coming from this is what i want to do and i think yeah it would be very funny if i would suddenly produce a um uh, like an ambient album uh, that wouldn't have really fit to the rest of my stuff i'm doing um but also i have like the opening track is different from what i'm usually producing and also um like one or two other tracks which are a bit different um yeah as i said it's such a milestone for an artist in a career um but sometimes i think in these days the music market is very very saturated so i think you have to work hard a lot before you release an album so in my own humble opinion I think you have to release a couple of good EPs before you actually do an album um because otherwise um yeah people might not notice the album or something it's just Yeah, uh, I mean I think you have to sort of build up a kind of track record, you know. People have got to want to hear an album, you know. Particularly well I think that's that's really been the kind of development of the way people consume or the way people kind of like um like view music now is very much in a kind of track by track way. But for you albums are still super important. Yeah, it's it's still very relevant for me. I also sell a lot in the store. Uh probably not as many as like the normal uh 12 inches, but um and I think maybe it's it's maybe not the most comfortable way to listen to an album on vinyl because every whatever eight minutes you have to get up and you have to switch the side but yeah. i think in most albums of today you also get the download code and then or the the uh, streaming code and then you can also stream it but i think mm. listening to an album having a good glass of red wine and or a good glass of something else is still um such a good thing to do in an evening especially when you can't go out um yeah so i think yeah. it's it's still very important so you as we said moved to house music for for the project um how was how was working with them did it affect the way you worked in the studio at all i mean i certainly for me when i've when i'm working like with an A&R kind of like supervision like even even if it's very kind of hands off it can you know kind of play on my mind a bit and and affect the way I I approach things so did you have any of that how was how was the, the process of actually making it no not really i mean i did two releases before on uh house music so already yep. kind of knowing what i'm doing and then um i was already stockpiling tracks for a, a potential album um and so i think How did it all come together? I think Will was in Berlin and I 
picked him up. We went for food and he was like, yeah, what are your plans? Was like, ah, I was thinking about doing an album on my label. And he was like, oh, why are you not doing it on ours? And I was like, wow, I mean, you think that's cool? <laughs> right. Would you want that? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, do it. Uh, because I thought maybe I wasn't good enough to release an album on such a big label as ours is. But he made me feel really confident. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then I looked through the tracks and I was like, because how I made the album was a bit like I would play in a club. So maybe with like a softer opening track, then have a real journey through house music because it's very, uh, a bit of Detroit house and a bit of, um, I made this disco house track, then uh, it's new disco house, like a classic house and uh, underground house, whatever you want to call it. So that's the only thing I had in mind, but not what... Will would have wanted from me I f because I knew he was <clears throat> he wouldn't have asked me to release the album on his label if he wouldn't like the music I produce. So I just gave him the tracks. Said, look, this, these are my favorite tracks. I think these fit perfectly together. And he listened to them. He said, yeah, okay, well, okay, cool. That's it. Let's do it. <laughs> Great. I mean, it really really worked out. I think um, it really works as as a as a record. I mean, like. Um, like albums in electronic music sometimes sometimes don't work you know sometimes it's it's a bit of a kind of awkward fit for a producer like i mean i mean how how do you how did you how do you feel about that i mean what are your uh, oh, to look at it a slightly different way actually um what were the albums that you like the electronic albums anyway that you liked the most and were most kind of influential on you would you say like coming into this uh i think it's mostly old albums from for example Terence Parker or Paul Johnson yeah these kind yeah. of things and a way you could listen to an album, but you could also play the tracks in a in a club. Um, I think that was always very important to me because while I was also listening to some albums from some of my friends and they are great producers, they make very good uh, dance music. And then for the album, they're suddenly like, oh, no, I have to show my other side, you know, and they were like going fully <laughs> right. trance or something. And I was like, wow, this is like, okay, interesting. I mean, everyone can do what they want, but I thought like, oh, okay, uh, I didn't get really the... The journey from uh, like a dance music yeah. producer and then suddenly producing only uh, background music for elevators for the album. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so um, give me a couple more albums that you thought were were, were inf influential on you. Oh my god! Uh, Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm always so bad with names. So there was definitely this this really good Terence Parker with with a plastic water gun on the cover oh okay I'll, I'll um, have to dig it out put the link in the show notes yeah and then uh, yeah Paul Johnson of course I mean he made a few ones uh, I think the one I really liked was called uh, The Other Side of Me which was really good I think I had right, the yeah. one of the tracks was called And Backwards where he played a record backwards and then sampled it and then put a forward drum loop on it. That was crazy. Right. And it was really nice <laughs> and raw. Oh my God. Um, uh, some more albums. Um, of course, um, Daft Punk, the homework album. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I would say it's mostly like old albums and then also stuff like DJ Kicks, for example. Um, yeah, some mixed compilations and stuff. I mean, even stuff from Paul Kalkbrenner, like the, the very early stuff on Beepage Control was really good. What else was there? Oh my God, I'm so bad with names. I could show you all the covers now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So like, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, which I kind of have to ask you about, un unfortunately, um, is... No questions um, about age and weight, please. <laughs> no, no, not about age or weight. But um, 
you mentioned at the top or near the top anyway that you know when you were first starting out in Frankfurt that you were the only the only woman the only girl at the time and how has that changed like how has the experience of of being in the scene as a woman changed in the in that sort of almost 20 year period like what how has it developed and and what what have been the yeah what have been the big changes would you say for you yeah it's definitely um developed a lot i mean now you have a lot of women making music and um um yeah and it changed a lot i mean back then it was it was still really rare because you only had uh i mean there were women that were much more famous than me, like Ellen Alien, she's still in the game, Monica Kruse. Uh, there was, of course, Marusha, she was probably one of the famous and first ones. And it was such a special kind of thing. So, um, I mean, for me, it was never special because we were all musicians, you know, and I was always very well respected from the guys and we never made a big thing out of it. But then, of course, it happened to me a couple of times that I was playing at the club and then some guys came up to me afterwards like, yeah, that was not too bad for a woman. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> fuck off. You know, oh, man. <laughs> you yeah, know I can imagine. I yeah, can imagine. just these classic things. But um, I mean, I wasn't too angry because it's just, uh, I think it was just a, a natural evolution. And um, just because it was like something unexpected or something new for someone, I, I always felt, yeah, I cannot be angry with this person because uh, because he's thinking like, oh my God, she's a woman. It's like, oh, I've never seen something like this. And because um, I know from that, when, he's, when this guy saw me playing, maybe it changed a bit his mind that also women can make good music. And um, yeah, and when I was then back in Berlin, um, like loads more, Women, I, I knew mo a lot more women making music, um, mostly in the underground scene and stuff. And then I think um, I think we were always doing our thing, especially also like Cassie and and all these great great um, female DJs or whatever you want to call them. And but I think it really really started with maybe Nina Kravitz as well because I think she was the first one. I don't want to say she also used her look, but I mean, she's very good looking, of course. And I think that also, I think it's just a natural thing, you know, that when you when you make good music and you're also good looking, it attracts more uh, fans or people than when you're just a normal looking person. I mean, yeah, people are cynical about that. But to be honest, the way I look at it, it's like it's it's also works for men. You know, it's like if you're, if you're a good looking yeah. man, then it, then it helps. You know, yeah, it's like course. this is kind of essentially we're in show business yeah. and show business is a combination of um, like personal attraction and also whatever kind of uh, kind of art that you're kind of adding to that. So, so it's like, yeah, it, it works for everyone. Yeah, it's, I mean, it works, it works, works yeah, you, you're right. Of course, it works for both sides. Um, but I think this was also the start of like making more, uh, more girls confident. And also I think on the other side, people realize, okay, um, it can also be like, a, like a, a good business, you know? So, and I think now more girls getting confident and, um, Uh, I think after this this thing came out that only 10% women uh, play on festivals and stuff, it was a big thing in the in the scene, you know. And then I think a lot of more women came forward and um, were like, look, I also make good music. And I'm not sure what it is. I think maybe women are sometimes a bit more shy than the guys. Or, um, I mean, also, I see it from a different side because I studied software development and I was also the only woman in the whole 
class, you know. Right, yeah, that's got to be a masculine environment as well. Yeah, right? it's, a, it's the same thing. And I, and some people ask me, oh, why did you study that? And I was like, yeah, I was just interested in it, you know. And maybe back then not so many women were interested in like making music themselves or maybe they were also a bit scared of the technical aspect and stuff. But um, yeah, now I think also with a lot more female artists being confident and coming up and also play the big festivals and stuff like that. Also a lot of like um, other girls see it as a role model. And um, yeah, so I think it's, it's a good uh, in evolution and um, yeah, I, I think it's good, but then also with everything, you know, it has is it's uh, downsides as well. You know, it can be like quite saturated and uh, yeah. Sorry to just to jump in, but yeah. like what you said um, about the there was a kind of moment, wasn't there, where um, suddenly suddenly it became clear, as you said, that there was a fairly well extremely low representation, particularly in festival lineups, um, which was must have been four or five years ago. Now that happened, or yeah, maybe, or even maybe longer. A bit longer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, maybe it was 2015, 2016 or something. But then there was a there was a very um, sort of pronounced reaction to that in the in the dance press. And, you know, um, there's been a, a kind of, I guess, a movement to try and rectify that to a certain extent. And I wonder how you feel about like that kind of like element of like positive discrimination in in lineups. I mean, well, I'm not gonna put most of us. How do you feel about that as a as a way of dealing with the problem? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a special topic, you know, um, because I've been the only girl in lineups for ages and stuff like that. And I, and I always liked it. But then also I wasn't uh, I didn't feel very special because it was just because of the music. Um, so, yeah, it's very difficult to say or to explain um, I mean, have you ever felt that like you were being put on a lineup as a kind of token gesture, for example? You mean I was only in the lineup because to fulfill the quote, uh, or <laughs> have you ever felt like that? No, never. No, never. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I think that. No, I, I feel people book me because they respect me and they uh, they like the music. I think otherwise it wouldn't make much sense. Um, to book me then <laughs> yeah i mean i mean you'd hope so but yeah just in the context of this when that kind of moment happened there was a there was a real kind of pressure around like i mean i certainly heard from promoters that there was a there was a pressure on on them to like fulfill a certain quota yeah yeah um i don't know if, i think for me not so many things changed i i, I think Right, yeah, that's that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, so yeah. so if if the environment is similar, yeah. okay, go on, go. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to say because you know when the thing happened with this, um, when I think it was female pressure, they suddenly said, "Oh, uh, we only have ten percent of women." It's it's not that suddenly my booker was not able to sleep anymore because she got so many gigs from me. You know, <laughs> okay. yeah, it's sure. it's not like that. I think you still, even as a woman, you you also have to deliver. You also have to work your way up. And I think uh, I mean I can also only uh, talk from my personal view of uh, things, uh, point of view, sorry, um, that I only started to be booked on bigger parties and stuff when I started releasing great music. And then, uh, because I think when you release music, a lot more people get to know you because you suddenly happen on whatever YouTube, you happen in a record store, you happen here and there. Uh, because there's so many DJs, you know, it really takes a lot to really stick out between all the other DJs. And I think when you're also a great producer, it's a bit easier to get a bit more attention. And uh, for me personally, I think that was my turning point when people started to pay more attention to me and booked me more. And But I can't say that, or I never heard that, that someone 
said to my booker or to me, oh, we want to book Cinti because, uh, yeah, we need a woman in the lineup or something like this. No, I, I can't really say that. Um, he, I mean, that's that's a positive thing, really. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, uh, well, it's, clearly it was an issue that, that needed to be addressed somehow, yeah. you know? Um, and I think that it has. I mean, maybe it's not quite where it should be, but, I mean, it's definitely progress has been made. Yeah, yeah true. I mean, sometimes I see, I see. I mean, I'm not the kind of person who's always like, eh, there's no there's no women in the lineup and stuff like that. But sometimes I see parties uh, promoted on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, with no single woman in the lineup. And then, I mean, it's, it's their decision if they don't want it, whatever. Or sometimes you have parties where all the guys play and the woman is playing the opening. And it's a bit like, mm, well... <laughs> <laughs> to look at it from the other side, how do you feel about women-only lineups? No, I don't like that. <laughs> okay. It's like excluding, you know, and if I'm a big person of including everyone and I know there are also like only male lineups and uh, and it's kind of normal for us because we had it for so many years, but only female lineups, I'm also not a big fan of it. I, I don't know. I, I just like to interact with everyone. You know, I, I like to interact with my girlfriends, with my boyfriends. And um, if it's, and also I heard there's a festival only run by female, uh, by, by uh, ladies and only with um, girls in the lineup and, and also even only girls working at the festival. And I think it's a nice idea, but um, I personally would have the feeling I'm excluding myself a bit, you know, just if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a really tough topic to talk about because you can easily say the wrong things or you can easily offend people you know when you say oh i don't oh, yeah, like sure. uh, of course i don't like um female only lineups and then someone is like yeah but you can't say that because you're a woman it's i personally think whoever works hard and releases quality gets a, a slot in the lineup you know and um i saw this from myself you know when i was not producing i wasn't booked so many times and now i'm producing more so i get more attention of course and um if it also helps to be a woman, then yeah, okay, then it's, uh, I don't say no to that, of course. Um, yeah, difficult. Let, let's see what's going to happen in the next 10 years. <laughs> I mean, that's certainly how it, how it should work, right? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I, mean I, can, I can absolutely understand the, the imp- having the impression that there needs to be some kind of like, um, as I said, positive discrimination to it. But I mean, as, as long as the, I guess the wider perception is that the people are getting booked because they're good, then it's okay. Yeah, I think maybe I'm too old school with that because um, I'm like you, you know, we're making music for such a long time and I'm still kind of living the old school way, you know, everything came supernatural to me. I started DJing, then at some point, as I said before, I felt like, okay, I want to play this and that kind of uh, piece of music it wasn't available, so I was like, okay, let's start producing because uh, then I make this track available for myself to play. And then, uh, yeah, after a couple of records, you're like, oh, maybe I do an album, okay. So, yeah, this is my personal way and this is how I grew up in the scene and how uh, other people did it and also with the with record stores and stuff you know going going to a record store was back then it was the place where the deals were made you know you were meeting people yeah. from from record labels and uh they saw you playing or you got the gigs from there you know so i think i'm still living in my super cool old school kind of bubble and uh this yeah and for me personally this is wanna be how I want to be seen you know that I work hard uh, I release good music so I get bookings of course and if I'm not releasing anything or if I'm not if I'm lazy and not doing anything no podcasts no mixes no nothing why should someone book me because 
then I'm out out of the scene, I think. That's a good place to finish, I think. That okay. was um that was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, for, thank you. For coming on. I hope I said some uh some smart things. <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah. And hopefully our, our paths will cross sometime in the in the in the near future. That was Cynthia and I really enjoyed having that conversation. We got through some some meaty stuff towards the end there. Uh but I think um yeah, she's got a lot of interesting things to say across the board, really. Um, really enjoyed the uh, old school Bergheim panorama chat too. And yeah, as I mentioned in that, um, in the course of that conversation, I turned up in Berlin in 2007 and I, I really felt like I was I was late to the party, to be honest. But obviously what has transpired since kind of meant that I, I wasn't really late. But um, I mean, Berlin's got such an amazing history as a party town. And um, yeah, I mean, if you haven't been there, you should probably go, to be honest, because it's still it's still great. It's still a great place to go out and have a good time. Anyway, that's about it for this week. Just a couple of things. I'm playing a show. Wow. I'm playing a show this Friday night in London. I'm playing a Substance set, actually. Substance is the party that I used to put on at Berghain. It was a kind of dubstep slash techno slash post-dubstep kind of night it was the kind of first of that kind of thing that was put on a Bergheim it was a great thing to do did it for five years um but I'm playing a set which is kind of representative of what I used to play back then which is a long time ago now it finished in 2013 so um yeah I'll be playing weird left field dubstep post dubstep and techno and and stuff it's like the electric Brixton I should say it's a great lineup uh, including Loafer and Digital Mystics and Pinch and Madame X and Ski Mask and yeah, lots of other cool stuff going on on the bill. So yeah, it should be great. Electric Brixton Friday the 4th of February. So yeah, see you down there. And um, yeah, that's about it for this week. So um, remember to leave us a rating, leave us a review. Uh, there's a link to join the Discord server in the show notes. Um, so hit that and join us there. Say hello if you've got any questions or any suggestions for future guests or the kind of thing you want to hear talked about on the show. Be more than happy to hear from you. Otherwise, get me on Twitter at Scuba Official or Instagram, also Scuba Official. Hit us up on Bandcamp, hotflush.bandcamp.com for lots of good music and all that kind of thing. As I mentioned last week, the re-release of my SCB album Kaibu is out and... There will be a fresh bit of SCB material coming soon. So keep your eyes peeled for that. So, yeah, I think we're done. Thanks for listening. And I will check you next time on the Not A Diving podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.